Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I don't know what that means. Sometimes in sports. Um... Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, as usual. We also have a special guest, Osita Nwanevu, uh, staff writer at The New Republic. Um, Dara is feeling a little bit under the weather, uh, so we hope she does not have any deadly coronaviruses or, or anything. even the, the, the Vox flu, which <laughs> is also flu. bad. Every, everyone has had the Vox flu, and that's it's a, been very bad. That's a COVID-17, uh, I think, <laughs> is the, uh, what's been going around the office here. Um, so the um, it's going to be a debate tonight. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know that the South Carolina primary is coming up. South Carolina sort of serves the function of being like the quote-unquote black primary after we open with two super white states, go to Nevada where there's a lot of Latinos. Uh, so now is the week for everybody to bust out their takes right. on black voters. It's and like, their, na 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 black voters. And and what are they going to do? And their pitches. So what are they going to do? They love Joe Biden. Well, I think that, that I wanted to widen this out, and that's why I'm so glad Osita is here, because I think that there's an idea of Do you of have how, a more nuanced take than that? Oh, I have a significantly more nuanced yeah, take than that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yes. Um, but I think that how the media, and I know we are part of the media, and commenting on the media while being part of the media is the kind of meta that I don't enjoy, but there's a way in which we talk about black voters in politics that seems to rely on tropes. For example, the idea that black voters like Biden because Biden was Barack Obama's vice president, which appears to be, for some people, like the depth and breadth of their analysis when there's a lot more here and there's a lot more to how politicians are pitching themselves to specifically black voters, how black voters, you know, are thinking about these candidates, which comes in myriad ways because that's how humans work. And I think that it's really worth having a conversation about how black voters figure into this primary contest. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, You know, results are far away still, I guess a couple days away, uh, in South Carolina. And yet, I think already in this campaign, we've seen people get South Carolina wrong at least twice, uh, just in the polling. And I think a lot of it is has to do with the way people think about black voters and, and their tendencies. I think very early on, when people were just starting to jump in, you saw a lot of takes about Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. Because they were African-American politicians, because they were youngish, people thought that there might be a kind of Obama phenomenon going on. Uh, that they would have this sort of natural appeal to the black electorate in South Carolina. That didn't happen. Nothing materialized there. And then people moved to saying, like, as you just said, you know, Joe Biden, well-known in the African-American community, obviously, uh, has a lot of credit for being Obama's vice president, but is also just sort of this familiar face. You know, black voters are more, you know, pragmatic, conservative, and and they'll naturally sort of gravitate to, to Biden, and he sort of has South Carolina locked up. Well, now, just in the past couple of days, you know, we've seen Sanders make a lot of gains. We've seen Tom Steyer come out of nowhere with 
you know, a helicopter full of money, dumping it in South Carolina as basically a political unknown. And still, you know, he's in third place, I think, right now um, and, and is doing very well with black voters. So I think there is there is a lot of, you know, absence of nuance. Um, and I think that's important because, you know, in 2016, one of the big stories, not, you know, essential is the white working class story. But another one of the big reasons why Clinton lost that should be considered is there was this sort of drop in African-American turnout in some of the critical states. And if Democrats don't really understand what's going on with the black community, if they sort of continue to take this constituency for granted and say, you know, black people are all Democrats and they're rah-rah, you know. I think that, that there's a risk of missing what happened there. Um, and so it's important for people in the press, political consultants, strategists, whatever, to sort of take uh, this question more seriously. I so, think um, another thing to note here is that um, there have been a couple of folks who have made this point, but black voters in general, um, either black voters have tended to vote for Democrats or not vote. There has not been, as of yet, because Marcus Garvey never got to run for national office, there has not yet been the kind of the African-American populist response yeah. that white voters have had in say, 1968 or in 2016 yeah. of shifting from Democrat to Republican on uh, to the Republican Party on populist grounds. What you saw in 2016 was a host of black voters, specifically in Milwaukee and Detroit and elsewhere, who yeah. simply said, you know, both of these people seem like they suck and I'm out. Yeah. And so I think that one of the challenges that the Democratic Party faces is activating those voters because there are, you know, older black voters are very reliable Democrats if they vote. Yeah. And I think um, it's important also to, you know, when we talk sometimes about black voters, we do not give them the same degree of nuance when we think about white voters. White, we somehow can contemplate that what the white voting electorate includes, you know, white working class Americans and people in the service economy and wealthy college professors and, I don't know, people I went to college with. When we think about black voters, the implication seems to be that, like, black people, kind of all vaguely similar. When We've seen again and again and again, and we'll we'll talk about kind of the breakouts and the polling specifically on age. That's simply not true. But so I do want to say one thing about uh, turnout, right? right? Which is that there was a, a significant drop in African American turnout from 2016, uh, from sorry, from 2012 to 2016. Uh, but the drop was down to about the level seen in 2004 yeah, and in right. 2000. And there's a, a nuanced take on like black versus white turnout, right, which is that a, a larger share of, of white people voted in 2016 um, than of African Americans, uh, but also across the board, college graduates voted a much higher rate uh, than, than people who haven't gone to college. If you sort of control for educational attainment, African American turnout is higher, even in 2016, than white turnout, although they're close. And then it's Asian and Latino turnout is really, really, really low. So, you know, a, a question for Democrats, right? Uh, Obama definitely, I mean, in 2008, he he won by such a large margin that nothing in particular mattered. Uh, but in 2012, he got an extraordinarily high African-American turnout. And had Hillary Clinton been able to replicate that, she would have won. Yeah. On the other hand, it's like, why did a white person not generate the same level of super unusual enthusiasm that a historic figure, you know, so it's like Democrats have never replicated JFK's performance with white Catholics mm -hmm. and like they're not going to 
you know, that's not like a tactical failing. Right. Yeah. It's just that like some some things you can you can only do once. Although what's interesting in, in that regard, you mentioned this. Like I, my very lazy take was like Cory Booker will probably pull well with African Americans, right. and he really didn't. And that's been an important impact on the whole campaign, right? Because he he wound up dropping out. But had there been a narrative going where it's like, well, New Hampshire looks rough for him, mm-hmm. but he's in really good shape in South Carolina, then once this Bernie panic set in, yeah. like moderates might have flocked course, to him. Yeah. He's just a much more like charismatic public speaker than, yeah. say, Amy Klobuchar is. Yeah, I, I've read a lot of takes like, whatever happened to Cory Booker? But like, right. what happened to Cory Booker is that what people thought might be his base like, turned out to not be interested. Yeah, I think that, um, and I, I'll, I'll relate this to a, an experience that I think many queer people have, which is that occasionally, like, let's say, you know, when I came out um, in college, I routinely had people who would introduce me to other queer women that they knew with the implication that, like, well, you're queer and she's queer, so... <laughs> and right. then we both look at each other and go, no, I no, thank you. And so I think that there is an oh. idea occasionally, especially outside, you know, for people who are not African American or part of this group, that you know, Cory Booker, black voters, it just makes sense when yeah. black voters themselves, the enthusiasm for Cory Booker that they may have had, even a couple of years ago, when Booker was being was attempting to position himself, you know, moving into um, inner city Newark, like really attempting to wear the mantle of Barack Obama as he interpreted it, that may have been an effective pitch, you know, had he run earlier. But I just think for a lot of people in 2020, it was just kind of it wasn't there. Yeah. And especially if you think about the the voters who are often the who are often polled tend to be older voters. And older African-American voters, like my father, are among the most pragmatic of human beings. Right. And so, you know, the I, you know, Cory Booker does not, for some of the that voting cohort, does not inspire the same level of um, confidence, shall we say. Yeah, and I think that analysis extends to policy issues themselves. Because one of the narratives early on was that Joe Biden's record on uh, criminal justice, mass incarceration, his sort of clumsiness in talking about race in general was something that was going to really topple him. Um, and that just hasn't happened, you know. I mean, there was a lot of talk about those issues. Certainly they resonate, um, I think, on, on a, you know, resonate more with younger people. Not that older people don't care about mass incarceration, criminal justice, but it's just not the, the sort of potent topic that people thought would really determine where African-American voters um, are going to go. I, I just looked at the recent uh, CBS YouGov poll in South Carolina. 56% of black voters say they prioritize economic issues, jobs. About a quarter say they want to prioritize social issues like race and, and gender. So in that respect, African-American voters are a lot like the rest of the electorate. Like right. they, they, they want a job. They want it. You see the economy do well, et cetera. It's not that they don't care about the wider spectrum of issues, but people who thought that you know, a, a bad record on criminal justice was going to knock out this or that candidate and put some other candidate forward were just wrong. And, we, you know, one thing that, again, just a, a common similarity, right, is I think everybody understands that if you want to understand white public opinion, you can't go ask, like, 20 writers and intellectuals. <laughs> 
Right, that like you know, I, I some some of my best friends are, are white writers. JD Vance, um, maybe and, he knows everything. <laughs> sure, no, but you know what I mean. It's like the the pool of like white cultural figures is actually very idiosyncratic mm-hmm. relative to the white population, yeah. and is of course the same in the African American population. That if you primarily get your information through, like, professional take-havers, you were looking at a group of people who are more ideological, more cosmopolitan, like, just, like, in any kind of, like, racial context, and that that, I think, carries over, and that's part of what you've seen with Joe Biden, right? That, like, working-class people across the board are, like, less invested in some of this um, stuff about do you use the right words, do you talk about things in the right way. I mean, we all saw these, like, clips circulate, and it was like, this is going to be the end for him, and, like, it really wasn't. I also think, though, that that goes to, you know, it's not that those issues of race and identity are not important. But I would say that for a host of especially older African-American voters, their experience is, and I think this is absolutely true, is that this is in terms of how what our racial climate looks like right now. It is not great, but it is better than it was. Yeah. And I think that yeah. for— So it's a lowered expectation. Yeah, the, the expectations of for older voters, um, especially, I just keep thinking— um, I bring her up a lot, but uh, my late grandmother, I remember distinctly that when Obama won, she was very excited, but she was like, I'm not, you know, during, in Thanksgiving, I was like, oh, are you looking forward to the inauguration? And she was like, well, if they let them live through that, yeah. I, I will be. <laughs> yeah. And just like, she spent the entire Obama era until she passed away in 2015, basically waiting for something to happen to him. Right. And the degree of practiced and experienced pain and disappointment that I think are the lived experiences of many older African-American voters, I think really plays into that. And where they're, you know, the idea, and I, I think that this is, um, Corey Rubin wrote a, a biography of Clarence Thomas where he talks about Clarence Thomas's black nationalism yeah. um, as part of why Clarence Thomas's conservatism has come to the fore as it has. And part of that is a almost an acceptance that, like, America is racist and there's nothing we can do about it. And so his nationalism transitioned, you know, kind of to the sense of like, well, you know, because of that, I the progressivism seems almost inane in this context. And I and so I think in some ways for older black voters, there's a sense of like, well, you know, we've encountered many people saying the same things as a Biden or even a Bloomberg. We've encountered the same kinds of you know, lip service about criminal justice reform, and then we realize that that is aimed, you know, that is to the benefit of these people, but not to these people. And so I think an element of kind of practice disappointment plays into how voters rank those decisions. You know, kind of like, yes, it would be great if you would not say these things. It would be great if you weren't like this, but we're not going to get that. We're not going to get to experience it. So we'll just go for this because, this seems unattainable. Let, let's take a break, and then I, I want to return to this question of criminal justice reform. Yes. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. 
And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So to me, it's really striking looking at the 2020 cycle and to an extent 2016 as well, that it seems like all kinds of candidates, when they like want to say something to an African-American audience, that like this is where they go, right? And it's really questionable to me like that it doesn't seem to have worked in exactly the right way. Right. Or, or the, the predicted way. And I feel like we're going to step back from this campaign at some point. I mean, whether it's Biden or Sanders who wins South Carolina or, or whatever happens and say, like, why did everybody decide that this was like the number one thing to talk about when you're talking about a population that, you know, um, there's this incredible like discourse on like economic anxiety versus whatever among working class white people, Mm -hmm. but it's like non-white people also have tangible economic interests and jobs and healthcare and and everything else like that. And the sense I get is that like with both Biden and Sanders doing well, that they are offering like different versions of a kind of material politics with Biden offering a sort of a a moderate version and Sanders offering a kind of lefty version. But they're both like these like cranky old guys who center kitchen table issues over other things. And that just seems – it seems to me like that's what like all kinds of people want. I mean that that, that it's it's telling that those are the two candidates who seem to do well in the polls with African Americans, right? That there's no – there's no, like, middle ground constituency for Pete and Amy Klobuchar mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, so one other thing I've been thinking about is that if you really did want to engage with the African-American electorate on cultural issues, on social issues, you know, apart from the sort of basic economic message, I was looking at, again, you know, some of the recent polling coming out of uh, South Carolina, CBS, YouGov, they asked people what they wanted to see in a president, uh, whether they valued experience, authenticity, all that kind of stuff. Then they turned to the question of faith, whether they think it's important for candidates to talk about their religious faith. Uh, 30% of whites said it was important to them to have a candidate before them talking openly about their faith. 79% of black voters said it was important, with 47% saying it was very or extremely. Now, if you had said that in 
2004, 2008, uh-huh. people would have said, well, Bib Web, obviously. Like, you have to make these kinds of faith-based appeals, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, to, to be competitive in an election. Uh, but that's something that's really fallen by the wayside, I think, in our political conversations. You don't have candidates, I think, say for Pete Buttigieg, who's making a very specific kind of faith-based appeal uh, that's not really rooted towards get, you know, get, getting African-Americans and all. But, you know, we haven't really seen candidates engage in that kind of level with voters in general, uh, not just black voters. And I think that there's a sense in which we've almost forgotten to, how to run for president in that way. Uh-huh. Right? We have these very sort of binary lanes where, you know, these are the candidates who are there to beat Trump. And these are the candidates who are there to do a kind of economic uh, progressivism and, and try to right. bring us to a new place bef- where we weren't before, you know, Trump came in, where we weren't during Obama. But there are a lot of different ways to run for president, even within those lanes. Um, and I feel like there just hasn't been a sense of differentiation. Like I remember like, in, you know, I was young, but like 2004, 2008, you'd have people who'd say, well, that's the faith candidate. That's a working class candidate. That's right. the economic progressive or mm-hmm. populist. That's, you know, uh, the national security candidate. All of that has sort of been collapsed in different ways uh, into this real bifurcation of the Democratic Party. Um, and again, I feel like that's something that limits your ability to engage in creative ways with different portions of the electorate, including African-American voters. And especially because I think that when we're thinking about African-American voters, I think we do us a, ourselves a disservice when we don't break down those voters in the same way we break down um, white voters, where we're not thinking about how black women respond very differently yeah. from black men. Um, I'm working on something on how black men and black women view Trump differently because there's been a lot of efforts by the Trump campaign to reach out to, quote unquote, the black community, a term of phrase I hate unless there are meetings. But you know, that has been largely a focus on an economic message, which polling has said that you know, black voters are focused on an economic message. However, that economic message is aimed at black men not yeah. black women. That's and right. the GOP has largely written off black women. I was reading a piece in The Federalist that literally said something like, you know, African-American women don't like Republicans and don't like white Republicans. And that's just kind of the way it is. And with no, like, I wonder why that might be. But I think that when we're thinking about how black women and black men respond to candidates differently um, and how those candidates have responded differently— For instance, Elizabeth Warren's campaign is laser-focused on black women who are an extremely reliable voting um, cohort. Particularly, you know, in 2012, they had the highest uh, propensity to vote of any group. Um, I don't know what the corresponding numbers were for 2016, but they were probably very high. And we've seen that again and again. And almost to the point that um, something that really annoyed me during the— Roy Moore special election was a degree of like, ah, black women save the day. And they came in here and rescued us from having Roy Moore as a senator. I'm like, well, one, a lot of it was Republicans staying home. But also the idea that African-American women are supposed to be the saviors of democracy in both local elections and on a national but, level. But, but they're reliable voters. They're very reliable voters. They're reliable voters, but also, you know, white suburban women are reliable voters. And we're not thinking like, ah, yes, like— save us all. And I think that, but thinking about that breakdown, thinking about the class breakdown, and I think most importantly, thinking about the age breakdown. I've mentioned my 65-year-old father who basically is like, whomever runs against Trump, I will vote for. Maybe Michael Bloomberg has the money to do it. That is not how people younger than 65 feel. And we've seen in South Carolina and across the board that younger minority voters, younger African-American voters, younger Latino voters, like Bernie Sanders a lot. Older voters, 
not so much. Well, and what's fascinating about the age divide, right, is like— you know, identity has always mattered to politics, and we sort of have in our heads a hierarchy of, like, identity cuts when you analyze the electorate. And traditionally in America, I think, like, you go to race first, right? That the gap between black and white voting behavior is huge. And then you look at at other kinds of things. Uh, but it now looks like on the Democratic side, you really do want to go to age first. Yeah. That the difference, right, that like young African-Americans, young Latinos, young whites, um, young white college graduates, and young working class whites, like all really like Bernie Sanders. And that then old people across the board really, really don't. And that that division between, you know, people who uh, have no Cold War context and whose politics are defined by Iraq and Trump and Barack Obama as a kind of baseline just have a comprehensively different worldview Mm -hmm. from people who remember Reagan, uh, are acculturated to the Cold War, and maybe have a different view of what's been going on in in the 21st century. And that itself is like a new— you know, it's it's not new for age to matter in politics, but I think its sort of primary role is quite distinctive from what we're what we're used to thinking about. But you see it everywhere, right? That there's this just incredible age gradient in assessments of Bernie Sanders, um, and that's not always sort of conveyed through certain like media channels, yeah. which themselves can be dominated by older people. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I sort of, and maybe this ultimately isn't going to matter for this election or, you know, elections in the near future, but I'm always interested in the people who deviate from the norm. Like, I want to hear from and hear about the young people who hate Bernie Sanders uh-huh. and, like, the old people who love Bernie Sanders, because I think that speaks to the ways in which certain messages can break through, even though there is a demographic profile that is supposed to make sense and that's supposed to work. And that's very important, particularly for progressives. Like, if you're somebody who really hopes Bernie Sanders wins, you have to ask yourself, like, what is the message or what is the sort of alteration of the message that is going to break through with 65-plus people Mm -hmm. who remember the Cold War and the Soviet Union? Uh, If you are a moderate, you know, what is the message that's going to make through to, you know, 20-somethings, early 30-somethings who really, really care about climate change and are freaked out about it, you know? I mean, there's, there's a sense in which that divide is very real and it's, it's very kind of clean, but I think that Again, this sort of bifurcation of the Democratic Party limits the ways in which we can sort of shape our politics and shape particular messages um, and and have a sort of less predictable, less, you know, kind of flat um, set of outcomes that we sort of expect. So, you know, I mean, this is, you know, I, I, I like grew up in very left wing circles. So I know a lot of old people who like Bernie Sanders, you know, atypical people. And, you know, what's interesting is that I would describe them as much more um, fringy relative to mainstream politics than I would say of young people, right? So, like, I know a lot of young people who like Bernie Sanders who are also just, like, engaged with mainstream politics in a consistent way, whereas the older people I know who like Bernie Sanders are people who spent most of their lives just totally cynical and alienated from politics, like never had a presidential primary that they were seriously invested in, or maybe just Jesse Jackson, you know, uh, who Bernie supported, right? Right. But they were people who were like self-consciously, like they didn't expect 
people who they liked to win elections right. ever. And they were kind of a little anti-electoralist in their like worldview about how political change happens. But now Bernie's there and they're like, oh, okay, like this, this is cool. Right. Whereas younger people I know who like Bernie, it's like they have some, you know, some of these young squad House members who they like or they have a DSA state Senate candidate who they like. They're or- inside the basic construct of politics. Whereas, you know, I, I also agree, like the older friends of my parents that I see via Facebook who like Bernie are very much of like, it's Ber- like Bernie is, they think of Bernie as being outside of politics. Bernie is this, you know, here is normal politics. Um, and then here is Bernie Sanders as these two separate entities. And it's interesting because that's not how Bernie Sanders sees himself. You know, Bernie Sanders is like, I've been in the Senate. I know, like, it's inter- it's fascinating to me. Because it's like, yeah, like, I know, like, 20-somethings who live in Washington, D.C. Yeah. and work at mainstream D.C. policy institutions and are then frustrated that their 40 or 50-something bosses yeah. like, hate Bernie Sanders. Yeah. But, like, their own personal mentality as young people wasn't that they're, like, not like they're here in DC. Like yeah. they're they're, right, they're, right. they're professionals, and that's that's different from how old people see Bernie. Like though those who like Bernie and those who don't, yeah, it's like they're in agreement in assessing Bernie right. as like really odd, right? Which is fascinating. Uh, so bringing this back to to black voters, I mean, one of the wrinkles that I've noticed recently, I haven't really read enough to fully develop all my thoughts about it, is that you know black people, you know in polls, you know, tend to seem very economically progressive Mm -hmm. across the board. But when you ask them about large government programs like Medicare for All, for instance, you see this kind of division uh, breakthrough where, you know, they'll say that they're all for 15 minimum wage, they're all for students uh, canceling student loan debt. But, you know, there was this big poll that Yahoo Gov did about socialism uh, in the primary uh, a little while ago, and there is a 48% plurality of African Americans saying that they supported eliminating private insurance compared to 39% of Democrats. In North Carolina, or sorry, South Carolina, you see uh, African Americans are less supportive of Medicare for all than white voters. Um, than white Democrats. Than white Democrats, yes, exactly. So, you know, instead, Herndon at the New York Times did a piece about this not too long ago where he talked about the level of mistrust or sort of skepticism that some in the African-American community have about large-scale government programs, given that these are people who have to deal with bureaucracy and have to deal with a lot of programs that are sort of extant already and uh, understand that the system for them doesn't work in the way that it does for white people or the way that it tends to. And that is something I think progressives should sort of take seriously and and try to understand. Right. Because I think that if you have – if your experience of government is the post office or, you know, kind of the base – like the – that, you know, government is the things we do together as uh, Barney Frank once said. That kind of experience where, you know, if your experience of government is – you know, you lost your benefits because of dumb reasons, because you started making too much money, or you were not able to access WIC because of some reason, or in general because you have faced um, systemic discrimination with regard to how these programs are administered, especially at the state level. I think that your understanding of what that could look like is, you know, the ceiling is way lower. But I would also say that in general, there's been uh, a lot of 
you know, since I write about conservatism, I think about this a lot. There's a, you know, there's always kind of the, well, African Americans tend to be more quote unquote conservative on social issues. Why do they not vote for Republicans? Where one, you you cannot make conservative and Republican into one thing. Um, yeah. There are many moderate and conservative Democrats, and that is a lane people are trying to get into. Um, but I also think that for many older African-American voters, yes, federal programs have been problematic, but federal programs and you know the federal government help to desegregate schools or administer basic civil rights practices. And so I think you know, the understanding of the full African Americans in this country understand the full breadth of what federal power can look like for good or for ill. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that makes them, again, more pragmatic and cynical about what Medicare for all could look like. I think that makes them, you know, sometimes more cynical about what uh, student loan forgiveness might look like. Um, I also, though, think that that means that they're, you know, Federal, the idea of federal involvement or the idea of, you know, quote unquote big government is way less scary as like a basic concept. It's not, you know, and so I think that this, the messaging of kind of socialism sucks does not work with people who are like, well, I've encountered bad government systems, but, you know, what, what's that Muhammad Ali quote about like, the Viet Cong never called him an N-word. Yeah. And so I think that there's an idea of like, you know, socialism for these groups like, is kind of an amorphous concept that does not mean the same things that perhaps it does to other cohorts of voters. Right. There's obviously just a certain level of disagreement on this. I mean, I, this came out really prominently in the in the 2016 primary, but like one take that I think a lot of African-American Hillary Clinton supporters had and that they, they articulated very clearly and forcefully was that they thought that a politics that centered class and universal programs was going to shortchange African Americans mm -hmm. necessarily and often I, I either explicitly or implicitly uh, they would cite um what's the book uh, what when affirmative action was right was white mm -hmm. um I, I'm yeah. forgetting the author of that book but I mean this is an idea that's very present in the in the literature right that like New Deal programs were created and implemented in a way that was systematically discriminatory uh, and then another way of of thinking about it um, that was a, a minority of like pro-Sanders voices at the time. It's more in line with um, Eric Schickler's book on, on racial realignment, which is that New Deal programs, they, they redistributed income to lower income people. Uh, African-Americans, because of discrimination, were much more disproportionately likely to benefit from mm -hmm. programs like that. And that's how uh, the African-American electorate got incorporated into the Democratic Party coalition in the first place, right. long before Civil Rights Act, th things like that. I haven't seen nearly as much sort of explicit discussion of like race versus class. In some ways, that's good because that was always like an incredibly simplistic yeah. framework. But also, sometimes it's like good to have a simplistic framework so you yeah. can you can pigeonhole uh, where where everybody is. And and some of that is that like Bernie has gotten kind of um, kind of woker than he was four years ago, it, it seems to me. I mean, I don't know. Is that your perception? I think so. Um, I, I think he, I think that was one of the critiques that the campaign really took seriously after 2016. Um, so you see more talk about criminal justice and mass incarceration and these kinds of things. Um, I'm just remembering now that there was a whole reparations 
conversation in this primary for like a couple <laughs> of months that, you know, it was, feels was, like that was thousands exactly, of years I just, ago. Exactly. But I forgot about it, you know. But that was one of the points, this cycle where people really sort of talked about that divide. That was I, like literally a year ago. Right? Yeah. I guess so, yeah. But And also to me, I feel like a lot of that conversation was almost less about reparations themselves, especially because a lot of a uh, number of the campaigns were like, we should have a study of the impact right. of reparations. Like no one even got like, we were not getting the car out of the driveway on reparations. Right. We were sort of sitting and looking at the car and contemplating it. Yeah. But it seemed to be, as I think for a lot of these campaigns, a positioning mechanism. And, um, you know, I like the idea of talking about reparations, the idea of increasing funding to HBCUs, which I think for a host of white Americans, they have very little experience of. Um, the you know Every time a reporter is like, why are these important? They get dragged on the internet. And I'm like, but I think that that really shows in some ways the impact of residential segregation where the idea of an HBCU seems foreign or like, but I, I think a lot of these ideas for campaigns has been a positioning mechanism. And I think Sanders in 2016 thought, or his campaign thought, that, you know, if we focus on an economic argument, that means that we don't need, you know, the economic argument is the root of these issues, that from there springs the prejudice and discrimination that limits the, you know, that lowers the ceiling for African-Americans across the board. But I think, and... I don't think it's so much that Sanders has gotten, quote, unquote, woker, like his third eye has not yet opened. (laughs) But I think that there have been others in the campaign and more conversations to be had about how, and I think that this is something, Elizabeth Warren, there's a piece in The Nation that came out yesterday about how Elizabeth Warren is the intersectional candidate. Oh, yeah. Um, I want to talk about that. a lot of people got, people got all up in their feelings about, which I was like, well, one, that was kind of the point of the article. Um, But I do think that there are these contested ideas, and I'll put them in kind of very base terms because people have written books about this. Are prejudice and discrimination the result of economic inequality? And would solving economic inequality reduce or eliminate prejudice and inequality? And I think that that's where you get into the quote-unquote economic anxiety argument about some of Trump's voters in 2016. And I think Sanders for a long time basically made the argument that, like, um, when he talked to the New York Times um, earlier, either late last year or earlier this year, he basically was like, okay, there's, like, a percentage of voters who are just racist. Like, that's just how it is. But— A basket of deplorables, so, so to speak. speak. Yes. Mm-hmm. and but it, but it was a little basket, like an Easter basket of deplorables. And so I—you th- know, and then but then he went on to say that, like, I think that there are a lot of people who voted out of fear. Yeah. And voted out of that kind of actual real life economic anxiety. Um, and I, you know, he thinks I can reach these voters and talk to them about these issues that impact all of us. But I think I think Warren's campaign is of the argument that, like, you know, when we have experienced in this country the least economic inequality. You know, I believe that the the number I looked this up a long time ago, so my numbers could be wrong, but like the period of least economic inequality in the United States was like 1953, 1954, which, as you might remember, not a really tip top time in uh, race relations in this country. And so I think that she's taking the argument that the economic development or an economic focus cannot solve these problems. And I think that it's a fascinating way of thinking about this. Let's take break number two, and then I want to sort of ping pong on that. 
Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Europe. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. it always comes up when I see politicians talk, you know, sometimes politicians just talk about issues, right? Like, here's what I think about healthcare. Uh, But a lot of times reporters sort of like ask politicians to talk about politics. And then you always have to ask yourself, okay, am I looking for a politician who will say something accurate about politics? Or am I looking for a politician who will say something politically smart? about Mm -hmm. politics. Because, of course, one thing we all know about politics is that the right thing to say and the most accurate thing to say are not always the same thing, right? And every time I hear Bernie talk about the electorate, I think, like, if this guy was writing a political science paper, like, this would be garbage. You know, like, he says all this stuff, like Jane was talking about, that, like, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's not, it's not true. But then I think, okay, but if he's a politician, right, it's like, if there are people who are racist enough to vote for Donald Trump, uh, but also not racist enough that they voted for Barack Obama, um, and you would like them to vote for you, like, what is the point in telling them that you think they're racists, right? Like, that doesn't, like, it seems true to me Mm -hmm. to be like, this is bad, but, like, there's sometimes a sentiment on Twitter that it's like, we we need to, like, call this out, right? And, like, maybe we, like, the three of us who are in the, the takes game, like, do. Like, right. we're, we're in the truth-telling game. But, like, our elected officials, is that their, is that their job? Or are they trying to, trying to win and then wield political power to help people? I guess that the question depends on, first of all, the extent to which you believe those people are central to your vision of electoral politics right. and how many people you think you ought to win. I mean, Obama had the whole controversy in 2008 where people cling to their guns and religion, blah, 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 blah. He won the election. You know, yes. he won a lot of those people. You know, so there's an extent to which your ability to tell the truth about you know, racial politics in this country and American history is not necessarily fatal to your electoral chances, you know, given, I think, what we've seen in the past you know, couple of elections. I mean, I think that that's, that's the thing is that now at this point, I'm like, is nothing seems fatal to your electoral chances. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, just like, hard we, to we, have a, we have a president who was like, America is a hellhole. And people are like, yes, let's go with that. Although, you know, like I, I reread recently Obama's, um, his like post-Jeremiah Wright speech. Yeah. yeah. It was extraordinary. It, it was, but I... I, I mean, I kind of felt like I was ready to cancel him after <laughs> after some of that stuff. Right, right, right. But it was 
it, it was politics. Speech, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it was it was great speech writing, but it was like he has this whole thing about his grandmother, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And and the point of it was to say that like he was not going to be the kind of black politician yeah, who yeah. was running around trying to police you, white America, right. for doing or saying racist stuff. And I think that's a big part of the reason Joe Biden is on the ticket, too. Yeah, not despite, but because he had a history of racial gaffes and stuff, right? Like, Obama was trying to signal that, like, he's he's chill, right? right? In, a, in a way that I do think was politically important. If he had suggested, look, the point of my candidacy— is that we are now going to have, like, exacting scrutiny of the past racial conduct of every prominent white person in America, that that would have gone, I think, poorly for him. Even though the scrutiny, like, would have been deserved on the right. merits. Yeah. White people do love forgiveness. Um, and But I, I think it, it's interesting, though, because one of the things about politics is that politics occasionally gets, you know, how people win gets removed from the specific context of who they won against and how you know, what that election looked like. And so I think, yes, the uh, the speech after the Jeremiah Wright thing, which now in hindsight just seems kind of like people were, I mean, I think people were performatively mad about that. But I think it's interesting also thinking about how this, how this happened in the, you know, Towards August, September, October 2008, um, that was my senior year of college, and I just remember a lot of friends who were excitedly telling me about how they had jobs at Bear Stearns, no longer having jobs at Bear Stearns. But I think the context in of how that took place and how this conversation was had and the degree of politicking that Obama did both then and afterwards of, you know, having Rick Warren give us, give a prayer at the inauguration. Yeah. Um, conservative. Uh, Who's me- Rick Warren? Yeah. For those yeah. Conservative megachurch pastor who uh, had said some anti-LGBT things. I remember this because I remember getting e- e- uh, emails about this from various um, LGBT groups at the time. But the degree of politicking that he had to do, essentially, to assuage fears and concerns, despite winning really, like, a re- with really large margins, the idea that bringing on Biden and bringing on kind of a host of people that were basically like, I know what you think this election means, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. I know what Rush Limbaugh thinks this election means. I actually went back and looked at what Limbaugh said um, after the election, like November 6th, 2008. And it was a kind of a lot of like, you know, this is backlash. This is, you know, we are going to get what's coming to us um, or what they think is coming to us. And you saw that sentiment coming from him after in 2012 as well. But the degree to which Obama felt it was important to assuage those fears and to make it, you know, I, I hear not so much the post-Jeremiah uh, Wright speech reference, but his 2004 DNC speech mm-hmm. um, about, you know, there is no red America or blue America. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting now. That, ter- that turned out to be really prescient. I know. Just, I know. There's well, no important <laughs> geographical or cultural divides in the country. I know. Well, the thing is, it's like, I don't know, you know, I think if you asked him about that now, he'd be like, I did not believe that. I wanted <laughs> to believe that, but I also knew it was important to say it. And it's it's fascinating thinking about that now and thinking about how candidates think about 
when we were talking about criminal justice reform and how much that seems to be not just a I care about criminal justice reform, but that is, and you see it from the Trump campaign most cynically, a I care about black people and black people care about criminal justice reform. Ergo, mm-hmm. here we are now. But I do think that the positioning element at play here is really important. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's also important to say that the the electorate has moved left on cultural issues. A lot of that is driven by democratic movement. Mm -hmm. We're at a point now where Republicans say nice things about criminal justice reform. They actually passed a criminal justice reform bill uh, under Trump. Trump uh, goes out of his way to say he's a friend of LGBT people, you know. Um, and so well, there's a, yeah. Well, it's not true, but he makes he makes the gestures. Yeah, I know. No, the yeah. idea of yeah. it's a position. It's the yeah. idea of the gesture. The exactly. idea of like, okay, exactly. we can that that's okay. Yeah. That, that is a fascinating idea of like that you you need to say these things or appear to say these things. Right. Even, even if you're a Republican, um, apparently. So yeah, I mean, uh, leftward trajectory on social and cultural issues has I think been a really and to some extent underappreciated feature of the evolution of American politics Mm -hmm. because it's made Trump's version of culture war politics sort of possible and potent that the the center of public opinion moved left enough. The Democratic Party politicians like moved left with it. And then that opened up a kind of space, right, for things that would not, it wouldn't have like been politically remarkable uh, 10 years ago. Um, or, or certainly 15 years ago, to be like, I really like police officers. Right, exactly. And also, I think we should stop illegal immigrants from crossing the border. You yeah. know, a politician might have said those things, right. but it would have been incredibly banal, yeah. right? Whereas now, these are like politicized concepts. And I think they've been pretty potent and effective politics for Republicans. But that's not because the country is becoming like more – uh, authoritarian on law and order concepts is because it's becoming less so, mm-hmm. right? And Democrats are raising their aspirations on right. a lot of these topics, but that's a risky sort of process, right? I mean, you you just you never would have had the kind of embrace of Black Lives Matter, you know, in in the past, right? Like when uh, remember the, the the beer summit, that's right, like yeah. early in the Obama years, right? And the like upshot of that was that basically Obama was a apologizing for saying it was bad for a black professor to be arrested for trying to enter his own house, right? Yeah, it's... Uh, so what, this, is what made, this is what made Kamala Harris's run so fascinating to me, because she's a figure that emerges in the national scene, like on the cusp of this change, but it, it, it sort of Ferguson transition had not happened yet. So she writes this memoir uh, at some point in, like, the early 2010s, like, before Ferguson happens, it's like, I've been a great prosecutor. You know, I, I, I've i been, you know, not tough on crime, but, you know, I, I've put a lot of people who needed to be put away. Put away. She has all, she all of these clips about um, the extent to which she, you know, did her job as a prosecutor that sounded really good in, like, 2012 and, like, 2013. But the post-Ferguson shift happens in such a dramatic fashion Um, At the time, you know, 2020 comes around, she's having to answer questions about a world that is very different or was very different from the world we now live in on those issues. So I think that, you know, in her candidacy, you can see kind of a a transitional figure, somebody who really had to find her footing in this new space after a career spent working to advance herself in democratic politics under one particular paradigm. Yeah, and it's... 
that paradigm shifted so quickly. Yeah. It, it's really interesting, though. I mean, the the cynical, like, when conservative outlets were like, Kamala's a cop. And I'm like, but you love cops. <laughs> right. You right. love cops so much. Although, you think they should be allowed to do whatever they want. Why, it, why isn't this a good thing? I mean, I think in retrospect, though, she probably miscalculated in trying to— Right. Evolve. She tried to lean into it a As, little bit when she yeah. came in. Yeah, I mean she but she but she kind of waffled, right? Mm-hmm. And one issue for her, right? You know, whether you're talking about Bloomberg or, or Biden, right? Those guys are so old and they've done so many different things that they can sort of ask people to like don't even think about like, right. what I did. Um, you know, a crime bill in 1994. Yeah. Uh, think of me as Barack Obama's vice president or whatever. But Harris like just hadn't been a senator for very long. Right. She was D.A. and then attorney general of California. That was like the vast majority of her career. So it was inherently awkward for her to say, oh, the real issue here is my health plan. Right. <laughs> like her career as a prosecutor, for better or worse, like that's what she's been doing yeah. in public life. And she didn't have a super clear like she could have said, like, yeah, I'm a cop. Like, <laughs> some of this backlash has gone too far. Violent crime is really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe people would have liked that. At least he would have. The the, the the anti-political correctness people would have loved her. Yeah. The many, many, the, the, those many people who are all, yeah. That's, I feel like that cohort is a very tough circle to That's score. the Gabbard cohort. That's oh, yes. That's the one she's trying to. Yes. <laughs> okay, so uh, Tulsi Gabbard, I think, is not going to win South Carolina. But <laughs> let's make not. let's make some irresponsible predictions before we close out. Who's going to win South Carolina? Oh, I I don't know. I mean, I think Biden is still the favorite, but it's close enough that Sanders could easily. I I agree. I also think um, I I made the comment that sometimes you win by losing, and sometimes you lose by winning. And I think I that don't know it, what that means. Well, it essentially <laughs> sometimes in sports, um, if you you know, obviously you want to win. But there are sometimes, say, in a college football game, where if you if the original spread on the game, if you gamble, was like 15 points and you win by one, sure. there's kind of the, yes, you won, but also you should have won by more, and uh, that's bad. You let the gamblers down. Yes. you Well, you, yes, and they are an angry group. But also the idea of, like, you kind of lost by not winning as much as you should have. Or I think that— Biden, who was, you know, Biden was up in South Carolina by 19, 20 points in November. Now, granted, November, thousands of years ago. But I do think that if Biden wins, but only by one or two points, and Sanders is already essentially, you know, getting himself ready for Super Tuesday, I think that that will be real cause for concern. But I do think that Biden has a good chance of winning in South Carolina. All right. I'm going to play the odds and say Bernie's going to win, even though he's down in the polls, because uh, then I'll be right and people will remember me. Uh, <laughs> no, but, you know, I think I, I, I think Biden keeps underperforming the idea of Joe Biden in a variety of contexts. And I think I think we may see that in South Carolina as well. OK, at any rate, uh, thanks, Osita, for, for joining us today. It's been really great to, to have you on. Thanks to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, our editor, Jeff Geld, our producer, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. 
Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.